I haven't heard any updates. No. All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We've seen, we're looking at this series of miracles that Jesus did, and we saw last week we finished this healing of a leper. We started working on his healing of a paralytic, which we will finish this week. Let me uh, read the passage, starting in verse 5, about the paralytic. It says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. We st there, as he starts in verse 5, he says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him. And we discuss the fact that there's a difference between uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account. In, Luke's, in, in Matthew's account, he writes a story as if the centurion is personally face-to-face -face with Jesus, asking for his assistance. When you go over to Luke's account in Luke 7, you find this entire incident took place through intermediaries. And we... As we talked about it, we saw that it was better to see Matthew was abbreviating the story and leaving out details that were non-essential to his purpose. Uh, because what a man does through agents, he may be said to have done through himself. And that's what took place here. To Matthew, as a former tax collector for Rome, he had probably received many messages from some higher-up Roman authority that were communicated to him via some lower-level Roman civil servant. And, but to him, the instructions he received from that lower-level person were just as if the higher-level authority had personally said it to him. As I told you, I, I experienced the same thing all the time through my career in law enforcement. Uh, there's a chain of command, and uh, you've got someone, when your lieutenant told you about something, he said, the sheriff said to do such and such, that was if, as if the sheriff said it. So that's the same idea here. That's the perspective from which Matthew is writing. So we also pointed out that every time you see a centurion mentioned in the New Testament, he's, a, he's one of the good guys. Um, there were a lot of bad centurions in the Roman army, but it's as if the Lord purposely picks out some of the most hated people in the land of Israel as illustrations of goodness and faith and saving grace to show the extent of his kingdom to reach beyond Israel. You see, because to the Jews, there are, if it wasn't bad enough to be a Gentile, it was worse to be a Gentile Roman soldier. Um, uh, and we pointed out most of them were not Italians. They were Gentiles from the areas that had been conquered by Rome and were under Roman control. Uh, and these guys would have been drawn from areas around Israel, such as Phoenicia, Decapolis, uh, Syria, and uh, Samaria. 
Rome hired these Gentile men into the army, trained them, and then had them serve as the occupying force. Uh, they would have known the Aramaic language, so they would have been better able to serve as an occupying army. And the centurions were the military backbone of that uh, occupying army and of the Roman Empire. Uh, we said in our comparison to our military today, it would be equivalent to the rank of a captain. Uh, they were the working officers, the, the backbone of the army. They were the guys who led their units into battle. And so here this guy is, a, a centurion in the Roman army assigned to Capernaum, part of the occupying forces, uh, who I personally believe was probably a Samaritan. Uh, he's a man who has learned that if you want to gain the cooperation of the people in the land that you're occupying, you treat them kindly and with respect. And he comes to Jesus through the mediation of some Jewish elders, Luke 7, 4, and 5 tells us when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it is he who built us our synagogue. And I told you last week, that's why I think this guy was a Samaritan. The Samaritans were half Jews. They accepted the Pentateuch. They didn't accept Jerusalem as the place where worship of Yahweh was to take place. They believed it should be in Mount Gerizim. But in many ways, the Samaritans' religious beliefs were similar to the Jews. Uh, and there were religious Samaritans who appreciated their heritage of the worship of Yahweh and tried to be obedient to the Mosaic law. And so I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that this centurion was probably a Samaritan who loved the nation and was very religious and willing to assist the Jewish people in, by building them a synagogue. And verse 6 of our text tells us what the message was that this centurion sent to Jesus. He said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. He uses a word which can be translated as child or slave, depending on the context. Uh, in, but in Luke's account, he uses the much more common word doulos, uh, which clearly means slave. And so it was rather common to have a child slave uh, in the house. In this case, based on the fact that this Greek word is in a masculine gender, uh, this slave was a young boy. And so he says, my boy slave is lying paralyzed at home. He's in great pain. We don't know what the disease or condition was, but regardless of what it was, it resulted in this young lad's paralysis accompanied by great pain and agony. And this is another reason why I like this centurion. He cared about this young boy who was his slave, and that sets him apart from just about everyone else in the Roman Empire. Most Roman centurions would have simply had the boy slave killed to put him out of his misery and then bought a new, healthy young slave, but not this centurion. Uh, he says, no, Lord, my young boy slave is paralyzed. He's in great pain. Can you bring relief to him? So this guy is a really nice man and we know that he was because just think he was so well liked that a group of jewish elders went to jesus on his behalf uh, he had shown such grace and kindness and generosity to the jewish population in that area even building them a synagogue that they were willing to help him out by going to jesus they even described him as worthy of jesus help so this guy has an understanding to some degree of the truthfulness of their religion. He's a God-fearing Gentile like Cornelius. 
Uh, he realizes that he's dealing with a people who are a covenant people of the living God, and he makes an investment in them. Uh, he loved their nation. He built them a synagogue at, in Capernaum. I've been to Capernaum, and uh, I've stood in the ruins of the synagogue there. Uh, they say the footings of the synagogue came from that day, so perhaps they are the ruins of the synagogue built by this very centurion. And so the elders came to Jesus, and they say, you ought to do this for him. I find that interesting because that says that they knew Jesus could heal that boy. Uh, everyone knew he could heal. There wasn't a debate about this. But the hardness of their heart didn't want to take it a step further and accept him as Messiah and Savior. So here is a good Gentile who loved Israel. And it's apparent that he was gentle and kind because he loved his slave. But don't think that this guy was some kind of wimpy, soft-hearted guy. Uh, he was a seasoned, capable, fighting man, or he would not have been a centurion. Uh, he was a man's man, a soldier's soldier. Uh, yet he had a deep compassion for this young slave boy, and Jesus knew the man's heart and did not need to hear a direct request, so he simply responded in love, saying, verse 7, I will come and heal him. Another thing about this centurion is that he's humble. How do we know that? Well, Jesus starts towards the man's house, and Luke tells us in Luke 7, 6 and 7, that when he got close to the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. That matches up with what Matthew records in verse 8 of our text. Can you imagine that? He's a man who commands dozens of Roman soldiers who must show honor and respect to him as their commander, do whatever he commands them to do, and yet he considers himself unworthy to have a simple Jewish rabbi enter his home. What gives? Well, he was a humble man. He recognized that Jesus was much more than just a healer. I believe that he recognized Jesus to be the Messiah, and I think you will too, uh, once we see the next couple of verses. And so he recognized that he's unworthy to be in Jesus' presence. He didn't go to Jesus himself because he recognized he's unworthy. And when he heard that Jesus was coming to his house, he knew enough about Jewish ceremonial teaching that a Jew was never to go into the house of a Gentile that he didn't want Jesus to violate that. He's humble, he's loving, he's sensitive, he really has a beatitude attitude. Uh, he's ripe for a transformation, and that provides the background. And when he says, Lord, in verses 6 and 8, I believe he's using that term in the fullness of what he, it means, that Jesus is God in flesh. If you doubt that, just look at verse 10. In the middle of the verse, Jesus says, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. In other words, this is the greatest faith I've seen yet in my ministry. What does that mean? It means faith in the reality of who Christ was. That's what it has to mean. He believed Jesus was God. That is the epitome of faith. And Jesus says his was that kind of faith. When he says Lord, he is affirming the Lordship of Christ. And what a rebuke this is to the Jews. Here is this Gentile Roman soldier, possibly a Samaritan, and Jesus says, he has the greatest faith I've ever seen in all of Israel. 
What a shock. Now in verse 9, he explains why there's no need for Jesus to come to a servant in order to physically heal him. He says, For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. What he's saying is this, Lord, I understand your authority. There might be some people around here saying, where do you get this authority? Who do you think you are? By what reason do you speak this way? But I know a man with authority when I see one. I've seen what you've done. I've seen the power of your words. I understand authority. What he's doing here is reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He says, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I can tell one of my men go and he goes and another one come and he comes. And I can man command my slave to do whatever I want him to do. Now watch what he's saying. He's saying, I'm a man who acts under the authority of the emperor. I understand authority and I exercise authority. How much more authority must you have as the supreme authority of the universe? He's saying, here I am under authority and I can command things to happen. You're above all authorities. You can speak the word and it'll happen. That's the level of his faith. Now, the first part of verse 10 is really interesting. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. The Greek word means to be amazed, to be astonished, to be surprised. Now think about that. Jesus is God in flesh. He knows everything. So when it says Jesus marveled, that's really some kind of statement. It tells us that Jesus in his humanness was literally amazed at the faith of this Gentile. He was surprised. So it says he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. He's, he's really sticking the knife in the Jews at this point. Uh, the implication of his words are, I should have found this kind of faith here. After all, you're the people of the covenant. You're the people of the promise. You're the people of the inheritance. You should have had this kind of faith. But I've never found it here, not this kind of faith. And so he commends this Gentile. Sure, he'd found faith among the Jews. No question about that. We saw that back in chapters 3 and 4. He had found faith, but never in this kind of combination, never with this level of virtue. I mean, love is here. Affection is here. Thoughtfulness is here. Humility is here. Absolute confidence in the power of Christ. Assurance that he is God in human form. We know even the disciples. What, what did Jesus say about them? O oh, you of what? Little faith. They were his chosen men, and even they weren't too sure about who he was. After the resurrection, Thomas is saying, I won't believe it without visual evidence. Philip is saying, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long, and yet you don't know who I am? But this man had great faith and it is a monumental foretaste of the kingdom Jesus gives them that Gentiles will have greater faith than Israel listen that's certainly true today isn't it 
the evangelical church is predominantly a Gentile church while most of Israel still rejects the Messiah. And Jesus goes on to make this clear in one of his most devastating statements. Look at verse 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Stop there. So there's coming a great glorious kingdom. There's coming a millennial kingdom and an eternal kingdom in the future. And in that kingdom, God's wonderful promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will come to pass. They are the people of the covenant. They are the ones through whom God brought the covenant. There is an essential Jewishness in the future of God's plans for the world. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob represent the great covenant of faith. The gospel came through Abraham's seed. Salvation came through Abraham's seed. We are sons of Abraham by faith. But what he says in verse 11 is there's going to be a lot of people who will come from east and west, and they will be in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what Jesus meant is that if you go east or west from Israel, you encompass what? The Gentile world. And in Luke 13, 29, Jesus adds north and south to the statement, to the description. So it's clear that he was referring to the Gentile nations. So what he's saying is the kingdom is going to be filled with Gentiles. You know something? They didn't believe that. That was a shocking statement to them. That was contrary to all of their teaching. They believed that before the kingdom came, all the Gentiles would be destroyed. So that statement was absolutely devastating to their theology. But the kingdom of God has encompassed the Gentiles, hasn't it? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and the church is filled with Gentiles. And we will sit down one day in the millennial kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if verse 11 wasn't devastating enough for them, verse 12 really puts the nail into the coffin. It says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, who are the sons of the kingdom? They're the Jews. In Acts 3.25, Peter referred to them as the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. So Jesus is saying that the Jews will be cast into hell. Now that's a very strong statement, an incredible statement. They're called the sons of the kingdom because by right they are those who should inherit the kingdom. The promise is to them. The privileges were given to them. But when the kingdom comes... Most of them, not all of them, will be, are going to be thrown into outer darkness. Why? Because you don't enter the kingdom on the basis of your physical heritage. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean anything. You see, in John 8, they argued with Jesus about it. Let's look at that. John chapter 8. Jesus has just told them, that if they continued in his word, they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And their response was to say, we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been enslaved. And so starting in verse 37, John 8, Jesus tells them this. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. 
I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. And then he says this to them in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Wow. What a conversation. Anytime someone tells you how much they love Jesus and all the wonderful and lovely things he said and how he was all about love and tolerance for others, you can know with certainty that they haven't actually read the Bible. Because there is no way that you can water down what he said here to be a message of let's all get along with one another. Believe me, they were infuriated. And you see that because at the end of the conversation, in verse 58, he tells them he's Yahweh in flesh. And verse 59 says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So going back to Matthew chapter 8 now, they hated him for making this statement. He says that they... The sons of the kingdom are going to be thrown out and end up in outer darkness. They forfeited their inheritance by unbelief. They annulled their promises. They lost their kingdom rights. And when proudly demanding entrance, they're going to be thrown into outer darkness. Now that term outer darkness, that it was Jewish vernacular for hell. The Talmud says... Sinners in Gehenna will be covered with darkness. And in their thinking, Gentiles were the sinners. Uh, and Jesus says, that's exactly where you're going, where sinners go. Away from the light of God's presence. You think it's the Gentiles who are going to all be in outer darkness, but the reality is it's going to be most of you. Some people get confused by that because the scriptures say that hell is a place of darkness but it also says it's a place of fire. Uh, and they wonder, how can you have fire without having light? Uh, and that's the supernatural quality of hell. Uh, that there will be fire, fire of torment, and along with it, total darkness, a phenomenon created by God for eternal punishment. In complete contrast to heaven, uh, which is a place of glorious light. Hell is a place of utter darkness. No light whatsoever. You see, the people in hell will not be commiserating with their friends because they won't be able to see them. 
It is eternal, solitary confinement, endless isolation in total darkness. And to add to the horror of that place, the end of verse 12 says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the effect of the darkness and eternal torment of the pain of the fire. There's nothing for all of eternity but darkness, excruciating pain and torment, helpless despair, wailing, screaming, and the gnashing of teeth in pain. Matthew 13.42, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13.50, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 23.13, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him in the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24.51, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every one of those is a quote from Jesus. He talked about hell a lot. He spoke about hell more often than he spoke about heaven. Again, I know people think Jesus only talked about love and generosity and kindness, but he didn't. He routinely warned of the danger of God's judgment of eternal hell for those who reject Christ. And that's why we should not avoid the subject either. James 2.19 says that, says that the demons believe everything about God, everything about Christ and the gospel, and they tremble in anticipation of the day when that holy God will condemn them to eternity in hell. And yet countless millions of people go merrily along their way, never considering the possibility that they face the same judgment. And what is sad is that many of them are sitting in the pews of evangelical churches claiming to believe in Jesus, but never doing any kind of self-examination to verify the validity of that claim. Another thing I consider almost unbelievable about hell and those in it is that I believe the residents of hell will spend eternity cursing God for sending them there. They will be eternally unrepentant. In Revelation 16, God's wrath is being poured out on the earth during the tribulation with a series of what are called bowl judgments. And there are two of the bowl judgments that give people a foretaste of what hell will be like. In the fourth bowl judgment, the sun becomes exceedingly hot so that people are scorched with fire and fierce heat. And verse 9 says, And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. And then the fifth bold judgment is poured on, and it makes everything dark. And it says the people will gnaw their tongues in pain. What's their response? Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And so I believe that the people who are condemned to hell for all of eternity will continue to blaspheme and curse God for sending them there, even though they will know 
that he is righteous and it is just for them to be there. Let me say one more thing. When we have an opportunity to present the gospel to someone, we must include a warning about God's judgment in eternal hell. Don't water it down by saying such things as, well, if you don't trust Christ, you'll face eternal separation from God. That's certainly true, but it minimizes what's going to take place. At least tell them you'll face eternity in hell, separated from God and his heaven. I'm not saying that you need to always describe hell in all of its detail to them, as I just did. But don't shy away from telling them that hell is their eternal destiny if they reject Jesus Christ. You know, when, when Jesus spoke about it, he was very descriptive in what he said. In Matthew 13, 42 and 50, he called it the furnace of fire. In Luke 16, 23, he called it a place of torment. In our text, he calls it outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So don't try to avoid mentioning it by reducing their rejection of Christ down to mere separation from God, family, and friends. I've heard gospel presentations like that. And that is a significant deflection from the seriousness of the situation. Warn them about what they're facing. I'm not saying you need to be one of those hellfire and brimstone kind of preachers. But you shouldn't deliberately avoid using words like hell and eternal condemnation when you present the gospel to them. Let me just pause and ask you, are there any questions about what I've just been saying about hell and these things? Bruce, I heard a preacher say one time, I don't know if it's true, but I thought it was interesting. He said also he believed that as these people are in hell, in darkness, torment, they also had the sensation of falling. In, in, just falling. I, there's nothing in Scripture that says that. There's nothing in Scripture that I know of that says that. But you know, you just think about I that for even a second. Just the thought of falling. I just think... I know what solitary confinement in a dark prison dungeon cell has done to many people through the years. A few years of that and people go raving mad. This is eternity in complete darkness with pain and agony, seeing and hearing no one but yourself and your thoughts, and they're all against God. Why did he save us? Yeah. It makes you, you, you ought to be grateful for his salvation. Well, going back to our text, Matthew 8, we see that in the midst of this miracle, Jesus makes a statement that was not forgotten. Verse 13. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So Jesus says, you guys can all go home. He's healed. Can you imagine that little slave boy suddenly sitting up and saying, oh my, what happened? I can move and all my pain's gone. If the centurion had had such great faith to believe that Jesus could heal that young lad before, can you imagine how much greater his faith was after he saw that little boy healed? 
You say, Bruce, Jesus told the centurion that the boy's healing was because he believed. Does that mean that we can claim to receive a healing from God if we have enough faith? No, not necessarily. God is sovereign in such matters. He's the one who makes the decision whether or not to heal. Remember the Apostle Paul? He asked the Lord three times to heal him of some kind of problem that was a thorn in the flesh for him. He called it a messenger of Satan to torment him. Of all people, Paul certainly would have had the faith to believe God could heal him. And yet, what was God's answer to him? He says, no, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. What was Paul's response? Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. God is the one who chooses when and if he will heal. Sometimes he heals people who had no faith. If you think about it, uh, you know, he, he sometimes healed people who had no faith and he healed hundreds, if not thousands of people during his three years of ministry. And they all certainly didn't have faith that he would heal them. In fact, the Bible doesn't say this little slave boy had any faith. Jesus healed him for the benefit of the centurion and everyone else in history who reads this story. But do you see what Jesus is communicating to the Jews and the Pharisees here? He's saying, I reach for outcast lepers. I reach for outcast Gentiles because my kingdom encompasses those who believe in me, not those who are of some particular race. Well, now we come to another physical healing Jesus performed that day, and it's the story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. He heals a woman with a fever. Verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. Now, there's a detail that Matthew leaves out here that Mark and Luke both include. This miracle occurred on the Sabbath. Apparently, Jesus walked down. Uh, he gave his Sermon on the Mount uh, on a Sabbath, then walked down the mountain into Capernaum. Along the way, he healed the leper, then met with the centurion's representatives and healed his slave boy. And, but before he went to Peter's house, both Mark 1 and Luke 4 tell us that he went to the synagogue and it, where it says that they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And while he's in the synagogue, there's a demon-possessed man who interrupted the service screaming, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus cast out the demon, and the crowd was obviously very amazed and impressed. And then he went across the street to Simon Peter's house. Now you might wonder, well then why did Matthew leave all of that out of his gospel account? Because it didn't fit his purpose. At this point in the structure of his gospel, he is writing about Jesus' power to heal physical disease. The casting out of the demon was from a man, and that was a spiritual healing. Uh, he only mentions those types of healing in passing in verse 16. 
Uh, he will address more of those kind of healings later in the chapter. But he is structuring the gospel in a specific way. So he's sticking with the miracles that fit the structure that he is using. So verse 16 tells us that Jesus went over to Peter's house. Most likely, uh, Peter had invited him for a meal there after attending synagogue. Mark adds the detail that Andrew, James, and John were also there. So it was a gathering of several of Jesus' disciples for a meal. And when they got there, verse 14 says that he saw his, that is Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick in bed with a fever. <clears throat> now, if you're Peter, how can you expect your wife to prepare and serve Sabbath dinner when your, her mother is sick, right? It puts a damper on the whole event. Peter's married. Later on, his wife traveled with him in some of his ministry. Uh, we know that because in 1 Peter, I mean 1 Corinthians 9:5, uh, Paul says it's not wrong for Peter to take along his wife on his ministry trips. Uh, but his mother-in-law lived with him and his wife at their home in Capernaum. Now the Pharisees had a prayer that they prayed every morning when they rose from bed. They said, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, has not, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Those were all categories of people they considered to be the lowest of society. A leper would fall into the same category in their thinking. They had a very low view of women. And so for Matthew to include the story of Jesus healing a woman was just another indictment of their pride and arrogance. So Jesus is slapping the Pharisees' thinking in the face. So according to Mark's account, the others, that is Peter, his wife, and the others who were there, asked Jesus to heal her. So it says in verse 15 that he touched her hand and the fever left her. Luke, the physician, adds a couple more details here that Matthew excludes. Uh, ever the observant doctor, Luke tells us that she was suffering from a high fever and that standing over her, he rebuked the fever. Uh, so her fever probably wasn't just a minor fever of 101 degrees or so. Uh, it was probably much higher. We aren't told what her illness was. It could have been the flu or pneumonia or an intestinal disease. It's also, it's possible it was malaria since uh, it was very common in that area in the world in biblical times. Uh, a person with malaria can have a fever of 105 or more. Uh, however, since the Bible doesn't say what the cause of the fever was, it's pure speculation to try to identify it. So Jesus stood over her as she laid in bed, reached out his hand and touched her, and at the same time rebuked the fever. And immediately, verse 15 says, the fever left her and she got up and waited on them. That's some kind of rapid recovery from sickness, isn't it? <laughs> it was immediate and complete. That's the way Jesus always healed. She goes from having a high fever to bustling around the house, preparing food and serving it to everyone else. I'm sure she made certain Jesus got an extra serving of fish and flatbread and probably a raisin cake or two. So on one Sabbath day, Jesus has healed a leper, a Gentile, 
a demon-possessed man, and a woman. But he isn't finished yet. Notice that Matthew gives us a final little epilogue, as it were. Verses 16 and 17. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Notice that these miracles took place when evening came. Sabbath is now over. The sun set, and so the Jews who would not do anything to break Sabbath law now brought a whole bunch of people to Jesus for healing. They included demon-possessed people as well as many others who were ill with diseases and various medical conditions. Notice that whether the problem was spiritual as with the demon-possessed or physical as with those who were ill, he healed all of them. He was giving evidence of his deity and messiahship, and everyone who came to him for healing was healed. It wasn't a question of their faith. It wasn't a question of their circumstances. He healed them all. It was always that way. In Matthew 12, 15, Matthew 14, 14, it says the same thing. Luke records the same thing in Luke 5, 17 and 9, 6. He gave unqualified, unlimited healing. Some Bible teachers believe that for all practical purposes, Jesus banished disease and sickness from Israel during the three years of his ministry because the extent of his miracles was so great. He healed thousands of people during that time. Now, why did he heal them all? Well, we could say that it was because of his great compassion, and we would be correct. He had tremendous compassion on people. He despised disease because he understood that disease was the result of sin. When Adam fell, disease entered into all of creation, and with, with that came death and illness. It doesn't uh, mean, uh, with death, let me just go back. When Adam fell, death entered in, and with that came disease and illness. Uh, it doesn't mean that every time you're sick, it's because you committed a certain sin. Uh, what I mean is that because there is sin in the world, there is disease in the world. So Jesus despised sin and death and disease. And so because of his great compassion toward people, he healed them. But there's more than that. He healed them because he was giving them a purview of his kingdom. Uh, a preview. Do you, do you want to know what will happen when Christ sets up his eternal kingdom? There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness. And so here he comes, healing the sick, raising the dead, banishing disease. They're all previews of his eternal kingdom. Just as on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he pulled back his flesh and revealed his glory, so does he give them a precursor of his coming glorious kingdom when disease is banished forever. But there's a third reason why he healed. It's given in verse 17. He healed for the purpose of, it's a purpose clause in the Greek, in order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Now the Old Testament had predicted that the Messiah would come and the prophets had said many things about the Messiah, be the savior of war, about the Savior of the world, about the Lamb of God who would take away sin. 
And when Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of all those things. And among all of the sayings of the prophets was the statement in Isaiah 53, 4, found there at the end of verse 17, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Let's look at Isaiah 53 for a couple of minutes. Let me read a few verses to help you get the context. Beginning in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. That's the statement Matthew quotes. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now notice, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus died for our sins. And when it says, and by his scourgings we are healed, it's not referring there specifically of physical healing, but of the healing of the disease of sin. People ask, is there physical healing in the atonement? The answer is yes, but it isn't for now. It's for later. Let me explain it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, did he take away our sin? Did he? Yeah. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. So then let me ask you this. Do you as a Christian have any problems with sin? Of course. Yes. He dealt with sin, but the fulfillment of that in its fullness is yet future, right? When he died on the cross, did he remove and destroy the Enemy death? Yes. Do Christians die? Yes. The complete fulfillment is yet future. When he died on the cross, did he deal with disease and death? Yes. Do we still get sick and die? Yes. That's still future too. So yes, there's healing in the atonement, just as there's deliverance from death in the atonement, just as the Fullness of restoration of the believer before God in eternity is in the atonement. But we still wait until that day. And so those people who come along and say, well, Christians should never get sick because there's healing in the atonement. You shouldn't have a cold. You shouldn't have cancer. You shouldn't have paralysis. You shouldn't have anything if you're a Christian because there's healing in the atonement. Then logically... They should also say neither should a Christian ever sin and neither should a Christian ever die. But that doesn't work too well because that's not an accurate, true understanding of what the Bible is teaching. Folks, Christ died for our sins, not our sicknesses. The good news, the gospel is good news about forgiveness, not health. Jesus Christ was made sin, not disease. 
Christ took away our sin, not our sickness. He died on the cross for our sin. But when Jesus was here on earth and was healing people of disease and illnesses, Matthew says that was the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. And what he means by that is that Jesus was revealing himself to be the Messiah who will banish all disease and all illness and all death when he establishes his eternal kingdom. And those healings by Jesus were just a foretaste of what the kingdom will be like. So yes, there's healing in the atonement. Yes, there's wholeness there. But it only in so far as it comes to us in the fullness of salvation, the redemption of our bodies when we're glorified in his eternal kingdom. And so we see here that what you have is really just a taste of the kingdom, just a preview of the kingdom. Yes, someday he will bear our sicknesses away. Someday he will carry all of our infirmities away. And this is just a taste of that which was said by the prophet Isaiah. The king was there and he was offering his kingdom and he was previewing its elements. He was on display and the evidence was that he, that he was the Messiah king was very clear. And yet as we will see as we go on with our study, the Jews not only failed to recognize him, but they accused him of being Satan's servant. There's no sadder circumstance than that. The kingdom was within their grasp and they lost the opportunity because they failed to recognize their king. Well, that brings us to the end of this chapter. And next week we will begin looking at verse 18. Into that passage and we start verse 18 next week. Any questions or comments before we go? Yes, Scott. So I think it's interesting that um, in chapter 8, we have a leper coming to him, boldly. The second one is the centurion asking for somebody else, praying mm -hmm. on behalf. Mm -hmm. The third one, with Jesus going to Peter's house, how it describes that Jesus saw. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, if Peter was... You know, their synagogue earlier, right? Hey, Jesus, my uh, my mother-in-law is sick. Or did he did he bring that up or not? Or did Jesus just go in and see? We don't know. We don't know. It's kind of interesting how there's three different ways that that Jesus heals. Yeah. And and how we approach him. Somebody else approaches on our behalf, or he sees him. Yep. And Luke tells us that. Peter and the other people in the house asked him to heal. So there were people approaching. Jesus was healing these people on the basis of others asking them or them asking them. Anything else? I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been a, I enjoyed studying it. I tell you, I enjoyed studying it. So, Well, let's close with prayer.